welcome to this podcast from Adelaide Place Baptist Church. We are a community of disciples, apprentices of Jesus, who live and work in the city of Glasgow, and it's our vision to join God in the renewal of all things. Our discipleship to Jesus is for all of our lives, so as well as listening to this podcast, we'd love for you to join us on a Sunday morning, or get involved in one of our missional communities, which are across the city throughout the week. Our prayer is that you encounter Jesus in some way through this podcast. More information can be found at apbc.net. Thank you. It's uh, great to be speaking um, again with you this morning. Um, We're back into the last Sunday and our brief foray into the series, Practicing the Way of Jesus. Um, last couple of weeks, we've been we've been looking at this series again. It's something that we did. Um, it was well, it was it was pre-pandemic. Now it was the the first time we had this series, and so we had a few Sundays just of revisiting um, this series again. And this so this is the last week, and next week we're into our summer Eucharist gatherings. We're going to be in the Gospel of Mark. Um, and we're going to be hearing from a few different people in our community, a few guest preachers as well. And summer gatherings, they just take a little bit of a different rhythm. Um, we gather around the table every Sunday, and it's just a little bit of a different space uh, during the summer months. Um, so looking forward to that as well, into Mark's gospel and the life of Jesus. Um, so it's really, really lovely to hear uh, Rebecca's uh, testimony there, and um, we're looking forward to your baptism in a short time. And you said it right there. You said baptism is a public declaration of faith, and I was like, that's great, because that's what I'm kind of talking about this morning, an outward statement of intent to walk in the way of Jesus. And so as we wrap up um, this Practice in the Way of Jesus series, park it again for now, I want us to consider how practicing the way of Jesus looks in public how it looks on the outside. But before we get there, I just want to read from Acts chapter 19, starting at verse 23, and hopefully the words will be up on the screen as well. Acts chapter 19, and it's titled The Riot in Ephesus. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together, along with the workers in related trades, and said, you know, my friends, we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus, and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's travelling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theatre together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theatre. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defence before the people. 
But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, great is the Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls, they can press charges. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we're in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there's no reason for it. After he'd said this, he dismissed the assembly. Strange story, perhaps, in the life and the beginnings of the early church. Practicing the way of Jesus, the main framework for this series has been all about how we spend our life with Jesus, how we spend time with Jesus, how we be with him, how we become more like Jesus, and how in our lives we do the things that he did to use his life as a model. And so it is, as it says on the tin, it's a way of life. It's lived out. What we believe as Christians, in other words, is vitally important to us, but it's also about the way that our beliefs are lived, our actions, the way our lives look like Jesus. I'm sure many of you already know that the earliest Christians weren't called Christians at all. That term came a lot later. At first, they were called followers of the way. And in some ways, I was thinking this week, wouldn't it be really interesting if we could almost rebrand ourselves as Christians, as followers of the way of Jesus? I wonder how that would work and look in today's world. Um, you can almost imagine, um, oh, so-and-so, it wouldn't be so-and-so's a Christian, it would be, oh, such-and-such is a follower of the way of Jesus. I just wonder how that would maybe change things slightly. But we've talked in this series, and especially when we first introduced it um, a few years ago, about these rhythms and practices of the way, these habits, these things that help us live out faith in Jesus in practical terms. We've talked about things like silence and solitude, Sabbath rest, prayer, Bible meditation, acts of service and justice, practicing simplicity, and the spiritual disciplines. We explored one just last week. David explored the examine with us, a way to look at our day to spend time, to pause, to reflect, to bring our days to Jesus. And so the framework is very much one of apprenticeship to Jesus, learning at the elbow of the master, the formation of habit. It's a matter of training versus trying, in the same way that maybe a runner who's about to do a marathon will have to train to be able to do a marathon. There's no expectation that they'll just be able to do it. Um, for those who know Emma, Boyd, she's running a marathon soon in Chicago, a big dream of hers. Um, some people have dreams like that, I don't quite know why. Um, but Emma's our neighbour, and so she lives just a couple doors down, and sometimes she'll come home from a run, and I'm heading in, and she's heading in, and I'm like, hey, how are you doing, how are you doing? And Emma's just sort of panting and out of breath. I'm sure she's really happy to see me in that moment. I heard this week um, a phrase that I really liked, following the way of Jesus, practicing the way it's like 
a curriculum for Christ-likeness. I really like that. Well, this is all very good and interesting, but I was thinking that if you were to truly put many of these things into practice, your life would look quite different, wouldn't it? Living life following the way of Jesus is, and should be, very distinct from the way that maybe the majority of the surrounding culture will live life. And this was certainly true of Jesus. This was certainly true of the apostles and the early church, the followers of the way. And I think we know this to be true. There's something inside us as followers of Jesus that deeply desires this to be true in ourselves, that our lives would look really quite different following Jesus. And so the challenge for the disciple is that when we look honestly at our lives and we ask ourselves the hard question, is following the way of Jesus making my life that distinct from the prevailing culture? And sometimes I wonder if our honest answer to that question can be no. Very often our lives can look very much like those of our neighbours and our colleagues, people who don't profess to follow Jesus. And this is not a new predicament at all for us in our context, in our culture. This is a predicament for Christians all over the world at all times and all places. In some senses, the problem for the follower of Jesus is if you could almost be a fly on the wall observing, say, my life for 24 hours, would it be at all obvious that I follow Jesus, that I call myself a Christian? Because to practice the way of Jesus, that would surely be the case. And it's not easy. Sometimes it feels like everything that what Jesus called the world is conspiring against us to live faithfully in his way. To live faithfully as a follower of Jesus, publicly, as a matter of public declaration. For our lives to declare that we follow Jesus. This feels like a very difficult thing to do today in a context like ours, in a city like ours, a culture like ours. I want you to have a look at some of these posters. These um, posters, I see them, they're often around train stations in Scotland, and I sometimes see them um, on my way into town at Charing Cross. Um, I have an artist friend who's also Christian, and we've discussed these posters at length, because he makes um, text-based artwork. And we're very aware, and he's very aware, of the kind of presentation of graphics and text and things like that. And so whenever I see one, I tend to take a picture of it and send him the photo. We talk about, you know, the colour and the font and the design and the aesthetics. We talk about the decision often to use the older style of translation with the these and the those. We talk about maybe the choice of Bible verses. We talk about what the perception might be of these, what the reception might be as people hop on and off the train going about their day. I'm not passing judgment here or making any kind of comment or saying anything about maybe the people who, who, who pay to put these up and design them. It's just a kind of thing to think about, I think, a visual pointer. I wonder what your reaction to these might be if you saw them. They are public declarations of the Christian faith. What does it make you feel about how your faith might be received in our culture and our context? 
This is the tension that we feel. To practice the way of Jesus publicly, openly, distinctively, in some senses is to put us at a great unease with the world around us. I don't know about you, but I'm sometimes ashamed to admit it that sometimes bringing up Jesus in conversation with friends who are non-Christians, particularly if it's a situation, I don't know if you've ever been in this situation where you have a friend who's a Christian and a friend who's not a Christian and you're all in conversation together and maybe the other friend brings up Jesus or something about faith and sometimes depending in the way that they bring it up or in the manner or the words they use, sometimes I think to myself, oh, I kind of cringe a little bit or, you know, and there's almost like this distancing like, oh, I'm not with them, I'm not with them type thing. It becomes particularly tricky if, like me, you work for a church or you have any kind of ministry-based work because then it's unavoidable. Those conversations that we have with people, you know the kind of conversations where you know you're not going to speak to this person ever again. It might be at the hairdressers or on the bus or something like that. And they ask you that inevitable question, well, what, what do you do? And I say, I work for a church. And it's like, oh, okay, Interesting. And usually the conversation progresses, well, what does that mean? What on earth do you do? And then I have to try and explain about, you know, what it is my job is and the worship and, and other things. And sometimes I think, well, I struggle sometimes to explain what it is I do to even people who go to church sometimes. So how can you get that across to someone who isn't familiar? It can be awkward, can't it? It can be embarrassing, if we're honest. I'm not going to do a big deep dive into kind of the cultural reasons as to why this might be. Why it might be that we can be so uncomfortable to share our faith with people who aren't Christians. But to at least satisfy some of that curiosity, here's a kind of quick list of things that came to my mind as maybe reasons why it's uncomfortable in our culture. There's a general mistrust of organised religion. There's the historic injustices committed by Christians in the church, and we wonder, are these going to come up in conversation? There's the perceived hypocrisy of Christians, especially at the moment, Christian leaders and the way that's being depicted in the media can be uncomfortable. There's the assumptions or the stereotypes that people carry about Christians. I feel like this was particularly prevalent a few years ago with um, TV shows like South Park and things like that where the Christians were often the kind of butt of the joke in many ways. There's the suspicion of universal truth claims in our culture. In other words, it's fine for you to have your religion, but just keep it private. I don't want to hear about it. There's the complexity of the social issues that we face today. Sometimes I feel like I need about seven different master's degrees in different areas like sociology and psychology and politics and history and economics just to pass any kind of comment with any kind of authority about what's going on in our world today. There's the fear of controversial topics, hot topics in our culture like abortion, gender, sexuality, racism. Are these topics going to come up when we start to share our faith? Are people going to ask us what we think about them? There's the fear, perhaps even, that being outed as a Christian might have implications for your life, for your job, for your position, or maybe even where you want to get to in life. I have a, another friend who's an artist down in London, and he was dropped from showing his work in a gallery because of his Christian faith. 
The gallery said to him that his faith was just too problematic for them, and so they wouldn't show his work. I wonder if any of this paints a familiar picture to you. I wonder if these and perhaps many more of these things contribute to this feeling that living publicly, distinctly as a Christian today, is quite hard for us. Our reading today began with the phrase, about that time, there was a great disturbance about the way. And what proceeded from there was a story about the community of Christians, remember, followers of the way in the city of Ephesus. And so this was a community of people who had committed to and were trying to live out the way of Jesus at that time. This was in the days of the uh, the Apostle Paul and, um, and the early disciples. And, and basically, the, this community of the way, the way that they were living was, was causing a bit of a stink. It was having an impact in the culture. It was having an impact in people's lives around them. There were hosts of people being converted to and joining this new thing called the way, and it was in many ways seen as a kind of sect of Judaism. They were following this guy called Jesus, and they were saying that he, they believed he was the Son of God, that he was tortured and killed for their sins, that he'd come back to life, and that Nary'd sent them on this mission to share this good news throughout the whole world. And those who believed in Jesus and who had decided to follow him in this context apparently were living such distinctive lives from the culture around them that it had begun to have these real impacts on the culture. There was something about the way that these early Christians were living that was upsetting a lot of people. It was causing a great disturbance. These people weren't keeping their faith private and hidden. It was doing things out there in the world. And one of the things, the thing that triggered this particular episode was that it was actually affecting the local economy. And so it turned into a fully-fledged riot. And the, basically what was happening was um, the, the main goddess, the main deity of the area of Ephesus. Ephesus had this, uh, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the temple of the goddess Artemis, and people would flock from all over the known world to worship this goddess. And so it turned into a riot because basically what was happening was a group of craftsmen and silversmiths, people who made objects of worship to the goddess, little um, items and tokens and shrines, they were taking a hit in their sales. Enough people were becoming Christians that these local craftsmen were seeing a hit in their business, and so they were unhappy about it. And so this chap, Demetrius, gets up and he whips other craftsmen into a bit of a frenzy. He starts saying, you know, my friends, we receive a good income from this business. We're doing well. And you see in here how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray a large number of people here in Ephesus and practically the whole province of Asia. That was kind of the area that we know as Turkey today. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There's danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. This was having a big impact. So people got a bit worked up. And so they start tearing through the city. And you know what it's like when there's a mob and things start getting a bit out of control and people start joining in and people don't even know what it is that they're joining in with. They just love a good, kind of a good riot, really. And they drag a couple of Paul's mates to the amphitheater, this kind of big open space where thousands of people could gather. 
And Paul hears about this and he's like, let me get in there, let me at them, let me go speak to them. And then a couple of wise people are like, probably not a good idea. I think you'll probably make things worse so that he doesn't go. There's a lot of shouting, there's a lot of uproar, there's anger. And in the end, it takes this kind of local government official to come along and kind of quell things down and say, you know, the issue is, if we're, if we're found guilty of rioting and we've got no legal reason for this riot, then the Romans who are in control of this area, they'll come and they'll, they'll quash the riot and there will probably be big political and, and awful implications for the city. So let's just disperse quietly and, and, and leave it for another day. If you've got an issue, take it up with the courts. And so there was all of this. All of this happening because a group of people following Jesus had such different lives that it was beginning to change the culture, the context around them. There was a disturbance about the way. There was a disturbance about the way of Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I really don't like making a fuss. I like a nice, quiet life. I don't even like a fuss when it comes to things like birthdays and things like that. I'm very agreeable, very non-confrontational. You will be surprised the amount of things that I can quietly suffer under just to not bring up the awkward conversation. I'm sure some of us can recognize that. There are also some of us, I think, that maybe in temperament and personality, we're not at all bothered by confrontation. We all know people like that in our lives too. But I guess the sense that for even those of us who are wired to be that way, there's something about practicing the way of Jesus. Maybe we just would rather we don't cause a disturbance. They can have big implications, can have a big impact. And many times Jesus saw the quiet path and he took the gentle path and he took the path of non-resistance, especially when he was accused and was before Pilate before his crucifixion. He didn't say a word. He didn't raise a word in his own defense. He didn't cause a fuss. In fact, in many ways, that was one of the reasons why the religious leaders of his time and place wanted him gone. But there was also a reason why he was there. And that was because at times, he also did cause a disturbance. He did confront people. Crowds of people followed him wherever he went. People put holes in roofs just to try and get close to him to be healed. He was constantly challenging the assumptions of the Christian, of the Christian, they weren't Christians, of the religious leaders of the day, often causing offense to their sensibilities. He was always breaking rules like doing healings on the Sabbath when you weren't meant to do things like that. Whenever he was round for dinner at someone else's house, there was always a scene, something drastic always happened, like a woman coming and washing Jesus' feet with her hair. You know, totally normal stuff like that. And of course, who can forget the vandalism? Turning over tables in the temple, driving people out with a whip. It's hardly non-confrontational. The reality is that when faced with Jesus, we're often confronted by Jesus. Jesus is compassionate, he's welcoming. Jesus makes time for little children and outcasts and the diseased 
and the disenfranchised. Jesus loves perfectly like nobody has ever loved before. And yet, when faced with Jesus, we can't get away from the reality that confronts us. In the book of Revelation to the church of Laodicea, Jesus is recorded as saying, you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Jesus confronts people. He always creates a decision moment. There's no halfway house. There's no disclaimer or caveat or little aside or third way. Are you going to choose me and follow me or reject me? Are you hot or cold? And this confrontation sometimes is even an uncomfortable thing even within the church sometimes. And so this is certainly not a comfortable thing in what Jesus called the world. And really it's ultimately what got him killed. And so I wonder, does the way that we practice the way of Jesus, does it create that moment of decision in other people? In our lives, in our culture, amongst our families, with our friends at home, at work, at university, is there a disturbance about the way? Is this a challenge that Jesus is asking of our lives today? This question of living distinctively in culture. And don't get me wrong, I'm not talking about going out and starting a riot. I'm not talking about deliberately being controversial, deliberately sticking our foot in it, being inappropriate or insensitive at the wrong moment, any of those things. But for the followers of Jesus in Ephesus, the riot, it just happened because of the way they were living. And I can't shake the sense that to live faithfully as a follower of the way, to truly practice the way, not this privatized faith that avoids sharing Jesus, that settles into the pattern of the world that the vast majority might be able to pass us by and be completely oblivious to who it is we follow. I can't shake the feeling that we might actually have to begin to become comfortable with the possibility that it might cause a disturbance. And of course the question is how do we do that then? Well, how might we live distinctly, practicing the way of Jesus with love and humility, and yet not shying away from the disturbance that it might cause? Think about those uh, Bible posters again that I shared. I often think about what my fellow commuters think of them. I imagine they might cause a disturbance for some people, an annoyance, confrontation, rejection, offense. Think about those posters again. Think about how they might cause a disturbance. And in contrast, I want to have a look at some work by an artist called Laquena. Laquena is based in London, and her work is really hot stuff in the art world at the moment. She's getting big shows and galleries and big public projects. And um, yeah, she's working with big brands and is basically um, a hot commodity in the art world. And just as I flick through a few of these, these will be artworks that will be seen in big galleries. Many of these artworks also are painted on the sides of public places, walls, train stations even. And I wonder if it's obvious to us sat here in church, Laquena is a Christian. She's a fellow follower of 
the way. And I wonder, as you see these images and think about the way that they're made and the words that have their roots in literal Bible verses, and here they are in secular galleries and in public spaces, I wonder what people think about these when they see them in public. It gives a slightly different sense or feeling of faith perhaps lived in public in a way that makes sense in our culture, but in a way that also isn't ashamed about what it is that maybe the artist believes. And I just think it's an interesting contrast for us to maybe think about. Following the way of Jesus ought to make the life of the disciple stand out because it points to Jesus. Jesus has the power in his word and in his love and in his grace to cause that moment of decision for people, a confrontation with himself. The gospel convicts the good news of Jesus spoken in public and on display in the lives of his followers has the power to change things in a culture so drastically that maybe even begins to impact the economy. And as those early followers of Jesus in Ephesus discovered, it can cause a bit of a stir. It can cause a disturbance. And I do think that maybe this is a fresh challenge for us today, when in the complexity of the world that we live in and the culture that we live in, it could be all too easy for us to just allow faith to exist privately, quietly, behind closed doors. And so would we be willing to step out in faith? To do something almost of what we're about to celebrate soon with baptism, this public declaration of faith with Jesus to humbly and lovingly be prepared to cause a disturbance about the way. Why don't we pray together? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the times when you come with a whisper, the times when you come with a small voice, gently, with loving, open arms. We thank you for the way in which you treated people with such dignity, with such compassion and kindness. And yet there is a reality of who you are, King Jesus, Lord over all creation. And that is going to have an impact in the world. And for those of us who follow you, who want to practice your way, who want to live as your disciples, would we be willing to step out in that boldness, the conviction of who you are? And I pray for those of us who are often shy of our faith. I pray for boldness. I pray for those of us who are able to speak well in public, for those of us who are, for want of a better word, the evangelists, the ones who really, really just want to desire to know others, uh, to know your name, that they will be able to do so with impact and with compassion. But for all of us as we follow 
your way? Would it begin to create something of a distinct flavor about our lives for those around us, for those who are close, for those who maybe are just passing by? Would you come, Jesus, and inspire us to live more in your way? In Jesus' name.